It is a terrorist attack in the most literal sense, right? It was big mm -hmm. and flashy and captured the world's attention. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, October 10th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe with the latest on the unfolding war between Israel and Hamas after Hamas militants over the weekend launched a surprise attack from Gaza, slaughtering hundreds of Israelis. We discuss the intelligence failure, the response from American politicians, what happens next, and our own surprise at the unspeakable violence we're all seeing now. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Welcome to the powers that be. It is Tuesday, everybody. I did not say happy Tuesday like I usually would because Israel is now at war with Hamas. Uh, we are now three days into this conflict. More than 900 people have been killed in Israel. As of this recording, that number will almost certainly go up. There are hostages inside Gaza. Almost 700 Palestinians have been killed uh, as Israel has responded to the Hamas attacks that began over the weekend. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe to talk about all of this. Julia, when this went down, I mean, how surprised were you? It seems like it caught everybody in the world off guard. Yeah, I mean, definitely caught me off guard. You know, I, I think so much of the West had been focused on Ukraine, understandably, and this was mm -hmm. just, I think, unfortunately, People have gotten used to a certain amount of violence in Israel-Palestine. I think that includes Israelis themselves. Mm -hmm. That, you know, there's just a certain level of violence that's become kind of acceptable, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, not that it actually is acceptable, but people have gotten kind of inured to it and divorced from it. And I think, you know, for all of the various uh, ideological um, lenses through which some people want to push this conflict through decolonization, resistance, etc. It can be all of those things, but really it is a terrorist attack in the most literal sense, right? It was big mm -hmm. and flashy and captured the world's attention, is drawing an outsized response uh, that will likely create even more suffering for the Palestinians and more images of Palestinian suffering. It is a twistedly masterful attack by Hamas that caught everybody off guard, including the Israelis and Isra Israeli intelligence, which Israel prides itself on its incredible intelligence services. And here mm -hmm. we are. Yeah, I started reading Rise and Kill First recently, which which is Ronan Bergman's book about like basically the history of Mossad and mm -hmm. Israel just being the most badass intelligence service in the world, their history of targeted assassinations. Uh, and he wrote a piece for the New York Times over the weekend where he was just like, you could, I mean, it was a very dry piece of reporting, but you could tell mm -hmm. flowing through his words was a shock that yeah. this was missed. And and I will say also like the spectacle of it yeah, really, like you said, it captured the world's attention. And I think the attack on the music festival in particular did that because, you know, if, if you are maybe a younger person in this world and you started seeing these images on social media of 
Hamas coming in on hang gliders and killing north mm-hmm. of 260, um, yeah. you know, young people. Suddenly this conflict, if it didn't already, feels relatable and terrifying. And there's so much connective tissue between the worlds that we live in, yeah. by the way, like New York, D.C., Washington, mm-hmm. between here and Israel. Yeah, I'm, I have a lot of friends and family in Israel. My dad just came back from there last week, uh, and he was in some of these places. Uh, ironically, some of mm. my friends who are in Israel are liberal Russians who fled the war in Ukraine mm. for Israel, and they're like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say, though, the music festival, I feel like, honestly, I'm so scared talking about this. I'll be honest, it's like, you know, I feel like talking publicly about Israel-Palestine is just a recipe for getting yelled at, like, you know, that mm-hmm. John Stewart sketch on, uh, mm-hmm. on The Daily Show. But, you know, I felt like the music festival to me, I I keep coming back to it because it is just in some ways a metaphor for the whole thing. You have these young Israelis partying through the night uh, at a music festival that was ostensibly for peace, but they're doing it just a few miles from Gaza, which is this horrific place Uh, that has been blockaded by their government, by Egypt, where people live in grinding, horrible poverty. Mm -hmm. And they're right next to each other. I mean, there was an amazing Reuters piece about this on Monday, where they said, you know, uh, an Israeli security uh, source told Reuters, how could this party happen this close to Gaza? And to me, it's kind of a metaphor for Israeli society, especially under Bibi. It's just in some ways this perfect twisted metaphor where you have Tel Aviv that is this cosmopolitan cities and people are going out to these amazing restaurants and nightclubs and having gay pride parades and eating avocado toast and going to the beach. And right there, Mm -hmm. you know, is Gaza, is the West Bank, which is, you know, has had so much violence this year, last year. And it's like... Both sides, both the Israelis and the Palestinians have kind of settled into this waiting game, or it seemed that way before this attack, that nobody wants a two-state solution anymore. Everybody just wants their one state with no room for the other, and we'll just wait the others out. And the fact that they were just kind of partying next to Gaza, this is not in any way, I mean, what happened was absolutely horrifying and disgusting. And you know, the fact that Hamas seemed to focus specifically on young women, Mm -hmm. that it then dragged back to Gaza and seems to have raped a lot of them. It's awful. But, you know, the the fact that they could happen so close together, and that some of the young people, I'm sure, thought that they were doing it for peace, that they were going to this rave for peace, is just to me, like, speaks to the detachment that a lot of Israelis had from the realities of the West Bank and Gaza, and that, especially under Bibi, it was like there's an acceptable level of violence, and if it's in the West Bank and Gaza, it's far enough away that we can close our eyes to it and go on with our lives, because mm-hmm. who can live like this, right? And we can ignore the the fact that we live in a pressure cooker, on a powder keg, you know, ticking time bomb, whatever metaphor you want to use. To me, it just... I I just keep coming back to that and it just is so disturbing and chilling and sad. I was remembering that 
I was at CNN in, I think, 2006 when the Hezbollah war started. And, you know, this is illustrated, by the way, in that famous Anthony Bourdain episode when him and his crew are in Beirut when the missiles start flying. And at the time, (laughs) Tel Aviv, the way people conceive of Tel Aviv, at least until a few days ago, was like, sick party town. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you're sitting on centuries of cultures clashing, sectarian violence, um, all kinds of cultural and religious demands on land. And safety can't be taken for granted. I do want to ask you, you know, speaking of getting yelled at by people when talking about this, (laughs) it's been really interesting to watch some of the response from Democrats on this over the last few days. Mm. On Saturday, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of of Michigan, which, by the way, in Dearborn has a very substantial Arab and Muslim population, but she tweeted this sort of like mushy, both sides style statement about how she's been in touch with all the communities involved and, you know, praying for peace. And it was just like the typical democratic orthodoxy on Israel, you know, is more or less actually kind of aligned with the Republican Party traditionally. It's just staunch pro-Israel support. They have the right to defend themselves. They are strongest ally in the region. Hamas are terrorists. And along with Whitmer, you saw like Ed Markey get booed in Boston on Monday at a pro-Israel rally for saying they need to de-escalate the violence. Mm -hmm. Katie Porter, who's running for Senate out here in California, the congresswoman from Orange County, sort of gave this both sidesy response when asked about it at a candidate forum over the weekend saying that, you know, we need to call out Israeli human rights abuses as well, which compared to Adam Schiff, who's like endorsed by AIPAC, was like, I fully stand with Israel. And so I don't know if there's actual emerging ideological differences among Democratic politicians and elected officials, but I looked it up. There has been a profound shift among Democratic voters and how they perceive of this. Just this year, Gallup found in a poll, after a decade in which Democrats have shown increasing affinity toward the Palestinians, their sympathies today in the Middle East now lie more with the Palestinians Mm -hmm. than the Israelis. 49% of Democratic voters say they're more sympathetic to the Palestinians versus 38%, which is a pretty strong reversal from Mm -hmm. even like five years ago. (laughs) And so... I'm thinking when maybe Whitmer sends that tweet, which, by the way, the global community was not screaming out for a comment from the governor of Michigan on Saturday <laughs> afternoon. So just yeah. hit pause and, and go back to the Michigan or Michigan State football game, Gretch. But, you know, like I wonder if, and this is aside from Rashida Tlaib and, and Ilan Omar, who, you know, their statements came out very strongly. They condemned the violence, but were also pretty strongly critical of Israel and they call the whole situation apartheid. They've long done that. These are other more mainstream Democrats who are kind of mm-hmm. getting twisted up by this in their public commentary. And I'm yeah. wondering if it's because they're spooked by the shift in the Democratic base, which is like, you know, maybe it's just the Netanyahu era, but they've moved away from being pro-Israel. And so then you have people like Ed Markey getting booed for saying <laughs> we shouldn't go in there and kick Hamas's ass. Yeah. No, I think I, you're exactly right. I'm glad you brought that up. And I think a lot of it is... Young people, it's a, the Democrats have a bigger tent. There's more young people, there's more people of color. And I think it's also, you know, this, it's, 
not all Democrats, but I think it's the kind mm-hmm. of more progressive wing, which, you know, has gravitated toward democratic socialism, toward narratives about decolonization and systemic mm-hmm. racism. And I think also academia has reframed this debate as, you know, before, I think in our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, it was about Jews who had been subject to violent anti-Semitism that culminated in the Holocaust and they needed a refuge and Israel was their safe harbor and their, as well as their ancestral homeland. And that's why it was so important to protect them. Mm-hmm. Now you're seeing a narrative where you kind of transpose a lot of kind of anti-colonialist rhetoric and, and theory onto this conflict as well mm-hmm. as the Black Lives Matter discourse. And so mm-hmm. in this discourse, Jews become powerful, rich white people, which is a problematic idea because it plays into a lot of ancient anti-Semitic tropes, right? Mm -hmm. And Palestinians are the people of color who are dispossessed and colonized. Mm -hmm. I think also some of it is that this is a history that is thousands of years long. It is very messy and very complicated. And throughout, you've seen leaders from both the Jewish sides and the Arab sides acknowledge each other's right to the land. Mm-hmm. But in also in this kind of social media era where there's a lot of virtue signaling and putting up black squares on your Instagram for Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter and adding little flags to your name, your username on, on Twitter or X or whatever, it's hard to distill complexity and nuance especially in an era when complexity and nuance is seen as moral equivocation. Mm-hmm. And there's also just, I think, a lack of understanding, a lack of education on this issue. I remember seeing people put out these quote-unquote educational videos about Israel-Palestine two years ago in the last mini-war, and mm. so much of it was so incomplete and slanted. You know, a lot of these narratives, for example, omit the role of the UN and the British, you know, or the fact that Israel was created by the UN, that the UN created the state of Israel and created an Arab state next to it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these narratives, you have these white, powerful, rich, land-hungry Jews showing up and colonizing like the Brits did in Africa or India. Mm-hmm. I remember two years ago, I asked on social media out of curiosity because I saw so many of these, you know, young people putting out these TikTok videos, et cetera, that claim to be informative, but were just so not factual. And I remember I, I asked I asked people on social media, I said, where do you think Jews come from? And most people said Europe. Mm. I think it's also very hard for people these days to hold two things in their heads at once. Yep. And it's hard to realize that, you know, it's a tiny piece of land to which two incredibly traumatized populations and people have a real claim to, both do, right? Mm -hmm. And they've both acknowledged this throughout time. I mean, but you're seeing a lot more of that on the left. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of, you and I were joking that, you know, we're scared to talk about this publicly. People come down on you really hard from the left, from the right. And the conversation on Israel has veered very hard to the left. In the meantime, 
In Israel, it's veered very hard to the right, and it doesn't help that Bibi has thrown in his lot with Christian evangelical Zionists who are crazy right-wingers in the U.S. That doesn't help, you know, attract progressive young people in the U.S. or liberal mm -hmm. Jews, you know, who feel like this country doesn't represent them anymore. It's just a big fucking mess. I had drinks with some friends here in L.A., who are former IDF actually a mm -hmm. few weeks ago. This is well before this happened. And like, they are mm -hmm. what you said. They are progressive Jews. They live here in Los Angeles now who don't like BB at all <laughs> and what he was doing mm -hmm. uh, on the judicial front recently, especially, but at the same time, like it's a thing that like an American person can't totally comprehend. Like you were in the military, but mm -hmm. you have a progressive worldview and you don't like Netanyahu. And yet now you are absolutely rallying to your country and absolutely. you are a nationalist. It is a, it is something that doesn't mm -hmm. compute um, for partisans in the United States with maximalist Manichaean views about the world. I'm glad you mentioned that. I want to take a quick break and talk about this when we come back. I want to pivot to one more thing before I let you go, Julia, mm -hmm. um, because I know you're busy reporting on this. This year, and we talked about this on a recent podcast, Republicans in Congress have been loudly demanding that we stop sending money to Ukraine uh, in their fight against the Russian invasion. That is confined to the MAGA right, sort of, but it's approaching a majority position among Republican voters. Mm -hmm. Is there any chance that Republicans will start to say the same thing about Israel here and that we should not give them unlimited weapons, money, and attention? I have a hunch uh, you're going to say no. <laughs> uh, that's a no for me. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've been talking to people from the conservative world this week, and some of them will frame it as Israel is a longstanding ally and an ally was attacked, but Israel's not a treaty ally. I think mm. so much of it is about, A, the kind of post 9-11 world, mm -hmm. uh, where in their minds, there's this clash of civilizations. There's the Judeo-Christian world versus the Muslim world, which to me, as a European Jew, is, I want to say hilarious, but it's not funny because the Christians weren't at all about the Judeo. They were all about slaughtering the Judeo in Europe for 2,000 years, and mm. Jews actually uh, fared much better in Muslim countries until 1948, but that's a whole other podcast. Mm. But yeah, there's this like view that there's it's the Judeo-Christian world against, if you remember, Islamofascism, all that stuff, right? There's a lot of Islamophobia on the right. And then there's mm -hmm. also this super creepy, to me, religious aspect, this eschatological aspect, right? Where you need all the Jews, you know, according to one reading of the New Testament, you need all the Jews to go home to Israel, mm -hmm. and that will usher in the second coming of Christ and the rapture. And that's why these people claim to be friends of the Jews in Israel. But to me, it's like, okay, so you need us to all go to Israel. None of us are allowed to stay in America. Like, what if we're American citizens? Are we just it doesn't matter because we're Jews and we got to go to Israel. Okay. All right. Then we're in Israel and then the rapture happens and we all die a horrible death and are left behind, right? We don't get to go to heaven. It's just this, like, 
right? But they're called they're called Zionists. They're called Christian Zionists, and they're pro-Israel. And these people will attack me for you know. And I'm just like, who are you, right? And mm-hmm. and then at the same time, Bibi, who uh, comes from this family that is for decades has that has been all about like we're the only ones who understand the danger that Jews are in. Bibi has all been been about like. Remember when he told he got in trouble for telling French Jews to come to Israel because France couldn't protect them. But then, you know, he gets it, he's more in bed with the Christian evangelicals who want Jews to be slaughtered and left behind when Jesus comes and everybody goes to heaven, mm-hmm. is raptured to heaven. He is more closely aligned with them than with say liberal Jews like me. And it's just a whole mind fuck for me. But yeah, but to your original question, I think that's where a lot of the right-wing support comes from, and I don't see that fading, right? Because it's so tied up with the with the Bible-thumping and the evangelical faith of Republican voters who are disproportionately Republican primary voters, right? Mm-hmm. And are often some of the elected officials uh, in the Republican Party. So as long as there's this like religious aspect... I don't think that's going to go away. And then on the other side, you have Russia fighting Ukraine, and Russia is led by a man who's a, a white blonde man who says he is for traditional heteronormative values. He's against trans people. He's against gay people. He is super, super Christian or talks about it. He, you know, he sees this being uh, about a war against the decadent non-religious West, right? And mm-hmm. There's like more cultural, political affinity with him than there is with Ukraine, which is trying to be European. I, you know, I don't know if you've met anybody on the right. I don't think they love love Europe so much. Uh, that is correct. That is correct, Julia. Julia, thank you for all your insights on this. We will, I'm sure, have you back on in a few days with more of your reporting. Thank you. All right. Talk soon. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.